Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to an episode of Coral Chihuahua called Wither Chihuahua. Other second inversion chords. Other second inversion chords. Staying alive, staying alive. Harry, you're still finding that funny, aren't you? <laughs> Four episodes in. Oh, yeah. Um, and for reasons that will become apparent, this means that in this episode, we're talking about choral technique. And I have to say that this episode has required more thought than anything we've done so far. It's also the hardest one to do without actually standing in front of a choir and showing what you mean. Words are such an inefficient way of dealing with this. And to that extent, I'd heartily recommend my colleague Eamon Dugan's film series of singing tips for choral singers that are appearing on the 16's Facebook page at the moment. Absolute gold. Uh, The tracks we're going to play today are, to an extent, general. They don't necessarily illustrate a specific point, but they're all examples of what the three of us think are well-sung tracks in their own genre. Uh, I'm going to start, though, this week by asking Harry and Eamon a question each that are at least tangentially related uh, to this subject of choral technique. Harry, you're mostly connected with one choir, the 16. You've stood in front of them most of your adult life. You must know them so well. Do do you talk to them technically, or is your language primarily musical? I think it's primarily musical, actually. Um, I I sort of trust in them that they're... You know their their vocal technique is pretty good, and just there's the odd moment when obviously one has to talk about getting on top of a note or 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 you know just blending. But basically, you know they know me and they know what I want. That that is part of the technique, isn't it? When not to ask for things because you know they'll do it anyway. Uh, Eamon, here's your question. Uh, please can I have Charlotte's phone number. <laughs> As if she'd let you have that. Yeah, I think listeners will notice that you haven't answered the question. They'll draw their own conclusions. Uh, Okay, fine. So on to the first track. We're going to start with some Monteverdi from a magical he seems to have written in 1607, just after Orfeo. Uh, And I've chosen this performance from a Fagiolini CD called Monteverdi's Sweet Torment because it sums up for me an approach of singing which looks to focus on all the expressive individual colours of the five singers but with a consort and listening brain, trying to do all the things we're going to be talking about today so no pressure then the text is a series of oimes alas this and alas that as the poet remembers his lover who has recently died oimes, 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 
Julia Doyle, Claire Wilkinson, Nicholas Mulroy, one Eamon Dugan and Charles Gibbs in part of Monteverdi's Oimel Belviso. Harry, Eamon, there's too much to cover in this episode, uh, but we've said that we'll deal first with some smaller issues and then some bigger ones. Uh, can we have one from everyone that's relatively containable first? Eamon, how about you? OK, I'm going to go with uh, choir voicing. Uh, so this is essentially where you position your singers and how you like them to be to be grouped. I mean, do you have them in uh, in voice sections? So in blocks of sopranos, altos, tens and basses uh, and within that where you put them. So I know Harry likes to have uh, sopranos in the front row and then from right to left, uh, sorry, from left to right, altos, tenors and basses. My personal preference is for the basses to be in the middle. Uh, which comes as much from from singing, actually. I prefer to be in the texture rather than out on the edge. Um, but this uh, applies more to sort of larger choirs, I think. With you know, with smaller consorts, it's perhaps less of an issue. Although you might find when you're singing, uh, you know, for example, in Fagiolini, when we've been singing uh, five-part madrigals, sometimes it works to have the bass in the middle. Other mm. times, it seems to suit the music better to be uh, in voice order from top to bottom. Or maybe if you've got two tenors, have the tenors flanking and then other voices in the middle. Um, but with, with bigger choirs, it can become more important, I think. Uh, and for example, if you've got uh, an amateur group trying to create, uh, to, to locate them in such a way so that there's a, as uniform a sound as possible. Now, there are different issues to think about here. Do you, do you group the big voices together? Do you group the stronger singers together? Or is it more important to have someone who's a, a strong musician in the midst of those who are maybe, you know, need a little bit more uh, help and guidance. Uh, and it sort of comes from experience, I think, really. And over the years, you sort of start to realise what works for you uh, and the different contexts um, that you need to apply different different solutions to. My personal feeling is I prefer to keep the, the bigger voices uh, in the middle of the texture and then sort of fan them out, as it were. But as I say, always with, with stronger musicians uh, interspersed among them so that there are no stragglers. It's an interesting issue, isn't it? It, it seems to me that when you split them up into, I mean, if that term scrambled, when you have sort of bass, tenor, alto, soprano, bass, tenor, alto, soprano, mm. the singers always love that because they can hear more of what's going on in the texture. And especially for polyphony, and Sally was talking about this, you know, in the, in the previous episode, where you're trying to generate an energy from your relationship to another part, then that's particularly effective. I suppose the downside is you then can't microtune your vowels and your actual fundamental note tuning to singers of the same voice part. But more fundamentally, actually, it, when we're talking about um, Renaissance music, 
baroque music, early classical, in fact, even up to Brahms motets and things, when you've got so much counterpoint going on and you've got the voices scrambled, as a listener, you, you, you can't relate to that counterpoint because you're hearing it from all different parts. Which And I, I get the idea, I think in rehearsal, it's a fantastic idea, scrambling, making people listen to what's happening around them. But for me, you know, when you're doing music that is um, imitative, uh, full of counterpoint, then for me, I need to hear where that where that is coming from, um, and 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 that's yeah, that's why I don't do. I, I mm. never scramble with a sixteen. And actually, just picking up on a on a point that Eamon made about uh, you know the bases having liking to have the bases in the middle, that's an interesting thing because actually occasionally I do put the bases in the middle and it depends on the acoustics we're having to deal with. So somewhere like Durham Cathedral, it's essential to have the bases in the middle because we need that sort of stability and that foundation from the bass coming forward for everybody to hear. So for me, it depends on, on where we are. I had an interesting experience. Uh, I absolutely agree with you, Harry, about uh, in in Renaissance polyphony or Broglie's, anything with counterpoint, I think you do need to be in sections. But uh, when I was uh, working at the Guildhall School of Music, uh, directing the, vo the vocal consort there, um, this uh, we were singing some Victoria in a programme. And this is a repertoire that a lot of the singers were quite new to, and they were a little bit thrown by it. And I felt slightly inhibited. Uh, maybe they came with a, a preconception about how early music should sound. And it wasn't really working. And I had them in their, in their groups of sopranos, altos, tenors and basses. But we were also uh, in the same programme singing the Verdi Ave Maria. And I just tried as an experiment scrambling them uh, in this. And then we tried singing the Victoria in this, in this same mixed up uh, formation. And it seemed to absolutely liberate the singers. Suddenly the, the early music worked. It made it a nightmare to conduct because as you say, you've got, you can't, uh, you know, you don't just have one section to look out for a certain lead. But in terms of the sound, there was something about, I think, not being next to their own voice parts uh, for these singers who are maybe less experienced singing this type of repertoire, that it was liberating and they felt they were able to just sing their lines. That's that's interesting, and it, what you both said then maybe takes us back to something that the scrambling may work, may, may be useful in rehearsal as a process, but then maybe not for performance. Depending, but then again, you see, you talk about Eamon about bringing a section in, um, which is something you know it's one of our main jobs as conductors. But generally, by the time you get to a performance, that isn't you know you don't, you're not having to worry too much about bringing a, a group in. And uh, I'm, I'm still interested in this thing that the singers generate their own phrasing when they hear how their part relates to another. And so I suppose working scramble to start with and then moving towards the section thing to tighten up on tuning and vowel matching, which we'll come to, um, might be a good starting place. But it is different for everyone and, and every sort of choir. It is. And I think, but I think that's one of the beauties of that the whole thing of bringing a different part out. That's what keeps, I mean, for instance, for the 16, when we do a program 30 times over through the year, as a conductor, that's the beauty to be able to bring out a particular part. It, it makes it different every single evening. You're, you're responding to everything around you. And, and as I say, that is, that is the beauty of being out the front to be able to slightly dictate where the, the presence is going to come from in that particular phrase and to make it different mm. every time mm. right well we dealt with that then fantastic <laughs> uh, let, let's let's go on I, I want to talk about text next because i think it's one of the least cared about aspects of choral singing and rather than just sort of harangue conductors for why this is or choral singers i think it's worth trying to understand why it's not just laziness um 
if you ask singers to identify a passage in a piece of music, or, you know, a solo song or a choral piece, they probably won't be able to identify it by that word. But then when they look at that bit of music, they'll say, oh, right, oh, you mean my second top G? Because yeah. as, sing as singers, we're aware of the technical difficulties of what we do almost before everything else. And how many of us have looked through a piece of music first to see how many exposed, awkward bits there are rather than what the poem is about? And, and as conductors, we're focused on which bits are going to need the most rehearsal to get them right and you know which bits are taking us the longest time uh, to learn. So it's human nature. And also, we are musicians and not poets. And our response to a piece is generally more musical than it is poetic. But if the piece that we've chosen to do has set its text well, then it really is up to the conductor to start with that so that all the singers understand why the music goes as it does. Singing without understanding is so prevalent, especially when rehearsal time is in short supply. And in your choirs, you're going to have all sorts of resources that you probably haven't thought about. So if you don't understand the poetry, you'll surely find several people in the choir who get poetry more than you do. And it's great to use people's skills in this way. And if it's in a foreign language, you need a good translation, which is a lot easier than it used to be with all the online resources. And you probably know someone who speaks that language or uh, has experience of it in the choir and can coach on the meaning and the sounds uh, of it. And the other thing is here is where we start mixing choral techniques. If you learn the music by heart, you're going to have more brain space to think about that meaning when you sing. So there. You're floored by that. Fantastic. Great. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's brilliant. But you know, how it's amazing, isn't it? How many conductors, uh, I mean, I'm thinking principally of student conductors and things, when you they, they rehearse something and they will say, it's all about the words. And then for their next 30 minutes, they won't speak about a single word. And uh, it's totally, totally, totally beyond me. But, you know, I, I mean, words, obviously, I think for all three of us, they are so, so important. Um, and Robert, of course, you spent a lifetime doing Monteverdi. Well, there you have it, you know, sing as you, sing as you speak. And that should be constantly our, our, our dictum. And it, it reminds me of, of uh, the wonderful Cicely Berry, who was um, the RSC coach for years and years and years. And then her protege was Patsy Rosenberg, who of course written many, many books on acting and also has got, has, has talked about singing. And I think one of the interesting things that they talk about regarding both actors and singers is that as, as a singer, we're constantly wanting to be interesting and we can't, and, and there's a sort of fear that uh, um, you know, if we're not interesting, therefore we're not very good. And actually, there's a, there's a fear of just just being ordinary and doing doing the basics really really well delivering that text with marvelous clarity and precision and knowing what it means without resorting to mannerisms and and sort of uh, artificial vocal inflections well having heard those words let's go straight into our next track uh, fair is the heaven let's say nothing about it but go straight into it
breathtaking stuff just fantastic and from a disc we were just talking about text a disc called music and poetry uh, harry conducting the 16 lovely stuff harry thanks robert i mean so much of what i try to do is all based around architecture and it comes right back to when i was a chorister at canterbury and uh, there was we were we were absolutely we were singing like rubbish apparently one friday morning i think it was and alan wicks took a took a Salter and he threw it through the air and we it seemed to us to go for ages and he just said clicks his fingers and said sing like that and we suddenly realized what an arch in a phrase was all about you know it had a beginning and an end had a, had a top to it and so it's it sort of frames everything I, I i sort of do in music and but i think for singing what is really essential for me is that people sing right into the end of the phrases. They feel that arch. They sing into the arch of the phrase, but they also sing to the end of end of that line of poetry or or the phrase. And we got that with with that opening of "Fair as the Heaven" there, and and the fact of also just talking about words caressing the F of fair, just having the courage to use these consonants more. I know we'll get on to that later, but uh, uh, for me, you know, architecture is paramount. I was enjoying some uh, Bach on uh, radio recently um, and it was a very interesting performance but one thing I did find about it was that it was very clipped and the phrases weren't allowed to speak and there is a there is a thing now a perceived thing in very conducted baroque music and it's a thing that you get from the 1980s as well when they were st starting to uh, where, where period instrument players were really understanding how their bows worked and uh, this whole idea of the issue of down bow rule, where any stress has a down bow. A lot of conductors ended up trying to get the singers to sing like that and breaking things up. And it was part of the sort of cleansing of the, uh, of the ca canvas that was necessary to go through. But it did lead to a situation in which singers were, in, uh, were imitating instrumentalists. And that is the world turned on its head because every Baroque treatise talks about instruments in as much as how good how close they are to the to the human voice so respecting the natural legato of a human voice seems to be a way through to architecture yeah you're absolutely right about chopping that chopping those things up which was very much that sort of early early music movement and and sort of trying to get as many little ideas into one piece as possible but but actually what they ultimately lost was the sense of the whole and the sense of a beginning and an end and that doesn't matter what you're doing you know whether it's a, a handle oratory you need to know from the or first overture to the final chorus that you know what you're going to do but within each movement you also need to know how it's going to lead to something else it's an interesting thought here that um just going back to consonants for a moment the speed with which people deliver consonants, there's a huge spectrum uh, of emotional uh, and expressive potential of the speed of a consonant that I find that often singers uh, are not as alive to as they might be. And if we think if we're talking about, about bow strokes, you know, the speed of the bow, that can be matched uh, with the speed of the delivery of a consonant. If you're singing a word like miserere, of course, you know, we're, we're, we're used to singing that, you know, with a long expressive M to, to paint the colour of the word. But this can apply to so many other consonants, the speed with which you deliver an, an L uh, or, you know, the F, the F of fair that Harry was talking about here. They're just as important uh, as the colour of the vowels. You know, singers obsess about, about, about the colour within our vowels. Consonants are just as important. And which is so much part of phrasing. And so in which case, let's let's get on to consonants. Um, I've 
what we're all sitting here what's the date today june the june the something and we're waiting for a government announcement on how close singers are going to be together i th- i think consonants are going to be a really important part of that because when you're th- three meters away from another singer it's very difficult to tune in the same way but you can pick up on consonants so i, I just want to give my mantra for consonants which is that uh you need to try to to produce the consonants before a beat so that the vowel arrives on the beat. That is the Italian way. Uh, and that that takes away a whole host of problems. When a conductor brings his downbeat on, if everyone goes for, I don't know, soul or something, my soul doth magnify the Lord. If you put that S on the beat, there is no note on that beat. The vowel comes afterwards, therefore the note comes afterwards, and it feels as if the choir is singing behind a beat. Just watch a choir and see if there is this feeling that the conductor is having to beat ahead of them. Whereas if you sing before the beat, my s, and you release the vowel on the beat, then you get a much more active delivery of the chord. And this can have enormous benefits when it comes to, um, to dissonance or, or, or passing notes, suspensions, which only last for a fraction of the second. So consonants before the beat. Now, of course, the slightly anally retentive way of English singers is then to sit there and think, yes, but exactly where do you want the consonant? Well, the <laughs> glorious thing is it's like buying Christmas presents. It doesn't matter as long as they're there for Christmas Day. You can buy them three weeks in advance. And it doesn't matter if everyone does them in the same place, because if the vowel arrives together, it's, it's like playing an explosion backwards. Uh, you get all these little bits and pieces coming and hitting that that uh, beat at the same moment. You're absolutely right, Robert. I mean, you're totally right about. That. And actually, when I'm when I'm with orchestras and, and we've got a, singers with us, I always talk about the orchestra. Listen, don't listen to the listen to the consonant, but put your note with the vowel. You know that is that is leading you on to where you're supposed to be playing, and it's it's it is so so important. But you know we don't to encourage singers to do it it's 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 really uh, quite difficult because they will never believe that they're not doing it um and i i would love to know i'd love to know from you guys what you think about you know diction today and delivery of text because when i listen to great leader singers from the past like uh, fisher Diskow, peter pierce fritz wunderlich etc their their clarity of words their constants their vowels are just beautiful and I'm just wondering whether it's something to do with our CD world and the fact that, you know, we can all be close, might, we can all get great effects, that actually we've we, we become as a nation of singers actually incredibly lazy. Absolutely, Harry. I think the, I'm sure you've got a, a point there. You know, the, if you think about how they were having to project, uh, they had to, they did have to work that much harder. Um, and you know, I was listening to just on Radio 3 the other day on Record Review talking about uh, a certain singer singing a you know a big Verdi opera role and questioning whether whether the voice was right for this role, but it didn't really matter because it was a studio recording and therefore they could bring bring the mics in closer and make it balance that way. But would it work in live performance? Uh, and I think that element of it's not exactly cheating, but of um, you know the the the, the discipline. Uh, uh, that one needs to get the text across clearly in live performance all the time. Uh, yeah, sometimes we do. We, yeah, we lose track on that. We three work in a world in which rehearsal time is limited, and you know there are certain things that you have to deliver. You have to deliver the music. It has to be in tune. It has to be, 
uh, clear. And sometimes, you know, words will take a back seat. But the, the, the thing is, you're talking about there, Harry, you know, Fisher Disco, I've got his, you know, Vinterizer recording and listened to it goodness knows how many times. He just knew it so well. And when you know something well and you're really only thinking about communication, the words really do seem to take care of themselves. It's, it's not the question of just saying, I need more P and I need more S there. It's, I need more expression. And what I hope people might get out of this episode that's now, by the length it's taking, is going to split into two or three, is that actually, if the singers are expressive and if the conductors don't stop them being expressive, but encourage them to do the text, then a lot of these other problems will go away. I think you're absolutely right. I, I, funny enough, I was just... While you were saying that, it reminded me of a piece of Victoria, Ovos Omnes, a beautiful, um, one of the Tenebre responsories. I'm sure listeners will know it well. Si est, dol- est dolor, sicut dolor meus. There, if there be sorrow like my sorrow. Now, I've just been, I was listening to our recording of it yesterday, and I, you know, I remember talking to the group, I want est dolor, I want you to paint that clear get that constant of D of dollar out, paint the vowel after it. But what's really important actually is the ST of est before it, unimportant word, but it's leading us on to an important word, all these things. And they need really working. If you're singing at piano, you need to really work. If you're singing it much louder, you've got to be even more forceful and energized with it. And, you know, we, we don't, I, I could, I always want more. I'm never really satisfied with yeah. it. This is a thing that you that you face as a singer, though, in your in your preparation and in your mind, you you make all you make all these preparations and think right, this is what I'm going to do, and you might give a performance uh, and think right, you know, I really achieved all everything that I set out. So can my musical my musical gestures were really strong, and then you listen to a recording of the concert, and and barely any of it's there. And, and that's part of the challenge is is being able to bring this thing across, bring these points across and be as expressive as you want to be, as you say, Robert, but also still remaining or retaining the natural element to it that Harry was yeah. talking about it. But as conductors, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, we give the we give the language room. So we give those, those constants room. If we if we need the, you know, the, the main parts of the poetry to come out, we, 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 we've got to give it space. And that's where, you know, as conductors, we can give it that elasticity. Well, Harry's mentioned Ovos Omnis. Let's hear a little bit of that now.
Wonderful. Ovus Omnis from the Tenebrae Responsor is by Victoria, sung by the 16. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, it's time to say the word, guys. Uh, not the V word. That might have to be fitted into a later episode. But the B word, blend. Exactly what does that mean? I would say the word implies a shared approach between singers across certain parameters of choral singing. We've already touched on this today tangentially, but the main ones are tuning, vowel matching, and general vocal approach. Now, you should absolutely say not all choral traditions regard blend in the same way as the sort of UK cathedral choral tradition does. And it's the same in the instrumental world, too. I remember the players in Sirenu talking about South American traditions of wind playing, where the main thing was to blow the instrument with enormous vigour rather than worrying about the sort of issues that we're talking about. So let's understand our cultural limitations. But tuning. Why do we sing in tune? Because it sounds nicer than out of tune. Why is that? Well, we had to get back to a little bit of basic science. What is in tune? Two notes are in tune when their two frequencies, the number of vibrations per second in each of them, are in a very simple mathematical relationship to each other. If one note has twice the number of vibrations as another, it'll sound an octave higher. 110 vibrations a second, 220, 440. If you're slightly off that number, then the two notes will beat against each other. So if you're not on 440 but 443, for example, that will beat three times a second. Wah, 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 wah. And if instead of doubling the number, 110, 224, 40, you simply add the same number of vibrations again, you get this series, 110, 220, 330, 440, etc. But those sound like the notes of a major chord. Well, exactly. That's why major chords sound nice, because the notes are in it 
are mathematically related and the trillions of air molecules in the room are vibrating in sync and, and we can feel that and tuning is very much a matter of feeling it in the end. Now there's a slight complication with this and I think it's worth mentioning this because most of us sit and rehearse uh, with a keyboard in the room uh, a lot of the time. Um, that keyboards are tuned in a special system to allow them to play in all keys. But to make that work, their major and minor thirds have to be tuned about a sixth of a semitone out. And as a result of that, piano thirds, whether major or minor, beat. Singing a cappella music, we don't need to sing in piano tuning. But given that most of us have been brought up on it, pianos and organs, it's quite a hard thing to lose. You know, we've all been told in our class, keep your major thirds bright and push that minor third right down. It's a sad, sad chord. So I'm just going to play the difference between a pure major third and an equal one. Pure, then the equal one we used to, and then back to pure. You may have heard that as one of the chords having more buzz on it than the other, but the buzz is the beating and the interference. Uh, let's hear the minor third one now. Pure, then equal, and then pure. So major thirds in your choir will slot more beautifully into the chord if they're a little lower than piano ones. And because major thirds are often found with a sharp on the top note, so D to F sharp, D to F sharp, or A to C sharp, we tend to generalise that sharps at the top of a major third should be kept low. Last bit of science, as minor thirds will slot more beautifully into the chord if they're a little bit higher than piano ones, and because minor thirds are often found with a flat on the top note, G to B flat or C to E flat, we tend to generalise that flats at the top of a minor third should be kept high. So it's flats high, sharp, slow. Everything you always knew except the other way around. That's it. Shall we all go home? <laughs> <laughs> well done, Robert. Thank you. How do you, how do you follow that? Robert, was this always uh, part of your the way you work, uh, or is it something that you've grown into? Uh, very much grown into it. I listened back to earlier Fagellini recordings, and I didn't have the tools. I didn't know about it. I didn't know that at a moment of a suspension, dee, 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 that I needed to get that bass note up and not down. Um, I suppose I just listened a lot to people like Malcolm Greenhouse and David Miller, the lutenist, talking about tuning. Um, and Andrew Parrott, of course, who always knew about this stuff. Um, and it suddenly occurred to me that I didn't know what I was talking about. And if I was going to take up a university job, which I did in 2012, I needed to get my house in order. So it's, it's relatively late. Um, but I now read a score like that. I, I listen to tuning problems. I mean, we're all aware that sometimes choirs are just singing flat. Well, why is that? If you're singing in F major, and you've, you've taken your note from the piano and you've played a nice F major chord, it's almost impossible to sing another piece in A major afterwards because you'll have just been singing your A to F slightly low. So if you then play A major on the piano after that, it's going to seem crazy high and you're going to end up singing flat. So it's worth getting to grips with. Um, I'm doing a YouTube series at the moment called Sing the Score and the ninth episode of that does a little bit more on this and shows written examples as well. So people might want to, to chase that as well. I mean, when I was young, I just had a relatively good ear. I mean, that's how we tuned, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is, it was a complete revelation to me starting to to, to work like this. I, I, I did encounter it a little bit at university, actually. There was one chap in the choir, uh, one of the lay clerks who was a bit older uh, and more experienced. And he used to get uh, quite vexed uh, on the issue of major thirds and... Uh, you know, would would 
stand his ground quite staunchly uh, in where he was putting his thirds. But, you know, we didn't necessarily understand why that was the case. But it was singing Monteverdi with Fagiolini where it really came alive for me. Uh, and hearing how the dissonances uh, and then the resolutions ring when it when the when the chords are, are are properly tuned i say properly now but it it just it gives a whole new sheen uh, to the music sheen that's a great word it's interesting robert what you're saying earlier about uh, you know um, flats sharps and things i'm thinking of different acoustics um when we do recordings in st albans hoban in the in the in the city mm. of london it loves flat keys stick a sharp key there it really you know the choir have such problems anything's in flats we, we by and large don't have any problems i remember one palestrina disc i think everything was in flats and i don't think we had a single piece that that dipped in pitch at all and you know some but you know sometimes acoustics fight fight against us and we're battling them and that's always very difficult and it goes back to that thing you said earlier but we have the uk we have very limited rehearsal we might have 20 minutes in the cathedral get, to get used to an acoustic and it's hard i suppose uh, when you have that issue in a in a particular building i mean uh, Eamon and i were talking yesterday about um singer resonance and if a, if a sound is very bright it has all those upper partials coming off it that inform the sound and give it extra color and if a building is a very flat building and doesn't have those resonances in it, then it's very hard to tune because you can't produce, or, or at least those those upper partials aren't peeing off the walls in the same way. And in a place like St Albans Hoban, though I can only assume that that's because there are frequencies in the building that uh, that respond to particular notes. I mean, it's like when you sing in your bath or you turn on a vacuum cleaner, you know, as the vacuum cleaner goes, a particular part of that scale will be resonant in the room because of the because of the natural acoustics of the building i think that's one of the, that's one of the loveliest sounds i've heard you make in recent times Robert. Oh, you're <laughs> so rude i'm just you know cool suspension Uh, Eamon, talk about something else. What else are we talking about today? I mean, you said we weren't going to mention the V word, uh, and quite right, but let's look at the other V word, vowels, for a moment, because this uh, absolutely can tie into some of what you've just been talking about with regard to tuning. So vowels, which are the sounds formed um, by adjusting your tongue or your jaw and your lips, which affect the the shape of your your vocal tract and the resonances, and these the different resonances are what give the vowel uh, the distinct sound uh, and colour. Now, you were talking about blend, uh, and you mentioned uh, you know uniform vowel production, but I'm pleased to say that choirs seem to be moving away from this idea that, that blend is the idea of, of taking a lot of the colour out of the voice, uh, and that you have to you know, they used to, I'm going to say the V word, but it used to be the idea that you had to take the vibrato out of the sound uh, in order to be able to blend. Whereas now I think people are focusing much more uh, on on a unified uh, approach with the vowels. The problem with this is you've got to make sure that everyone is forming the vowels in the same way. Uh, I, I mean, it won't necessarily look the same, but they need to be producing them in the same way. And that, uh, you know, with really proficient Singers, uh, you know, with the 16, it's, it's not really a problem. With amateur choirs, uh, it, you, one needs to be a little bit more descriptive or prescriptive uh, in, how you want, in how you want the vowels to be produced. And then when, when those vowels are produced in a uniform fashion, then I think you achieve blend. 
Well, it's just, it's interesting. I always go back to, uh, I've mentioned them earlier, you know, Cicely Berry, Patsy Rosenberg, um, wonderful statement by both of them. Um, the clarity of thought is in the consonants. The emotion of the word is in the vowel. And, you know, that, again, I, I'm talking about working with the 16. So I, I, I and, you know, constantly, we often mention that and getting singers to really think of that. And that then does colour their um, approach to it all. I mean, you're quite right, Eamon, about, you know, everybody has to have in a if, in a choral setting, the more multiple numbers of singers you've got, they've all got to be thinking in the same way about how they produce those vowels and how they shape them. Um, but I think I've always found what's interesting is that, you know, people may differ slightly, but actually, as long as the, the sound that's coming out to me sounds correct, then... I'll live with that. I, I remember two exercises that um, I watched Eamon. So Eamon, having been rude to me earlier on, I'm now going to embarrass him by paying, paying him a compliment. Um, two really good exercises I learned from Eamon in a workshop once uh, are a very good way of singers understanding uh, how they form these vowels and trying to separate one thing from another. So you'll see a singer like a Cheshire, Cheshire cat going, e with the sides of their mouth somewhere up by their ears. And it's it's not really uh, necessary. Uh, and Eamon, your exercise of R to U, changing the sound only with the lips and involving nothing else at all. So R to U and back again and only using your lips. And the other one is R to E, only using the tongue and not changing the lip shape. I... And once they're aware of those two planes of sound, then you've got a vocabulary you can work with. It's really about making their mouth move, isn't it? I mean, I'm watching Eamon in, in, in our Genesis uh, courses and Eamon's whole mouth moves so brilliantly with, with the change of a vowel. And, you know, when a singer's face is dull and the, the, the mouth is not moving, then you get to that awful omnivowel, which is, which is just horrendous. Well, this is a problem uh, for British speak for, you know, for English speakers, because we're, we're, a, we're a nation of mumblers. I mean, you know, it comes right from, you know, from the top of the country down. If you think of Prince Charles, they could have all had a great career as, as ventriloquists. And it's not in our nature to move our, our lips uh, as much as as one might. You know, if you compare it with the Italians, where everything is wonderful and everything is, you know, very, very active. Bella si come un angelo in terra pellegrino. It's, there's so much energy and vibrancy in the language, the way they move. We're just that little bit more... Um, cautious in the way we deliver text uh and you know particularly again i keep coming back to to my work with with uh, non-professional choirs it's something that i work on very very hard with them is to get them to engage with that and to bring that level of energy but it feels to us like we're overdoing it but actually when you listen to it it just sounds expressive and animated that takes you back to harry's point earlier about how you could be working so hard at something with a choir and then when you come to hear it you barely notice the detail i'm still almost speechless with your prince charles uh, i mean that is the worst impression of, i would mean, just sound I, what was that you're just trying to get me back for that comment about your singing no, earlier i know no, what that is no i, can, I see through you i'm calling you out on it robert gibbering old man i mean it's nothing to do with our future sovereign <clears throat> can i have a knighthood please guys i think that's going to be it for one episode we've done we've done a lot of, vo of choral technique and some vocal technique, but I think to get on to vibrato and all these other things we want to talk to, talk about, it'll have to be another time. So cue, cue the um, East Ender sounds. We're going to finish with a track by a French composer from 1952. This is Jean-Yves Daniel Lezure, 
I think this is one of the great works of the 20th century for choir. It's for 12 voices. Uh, this is just one of the sections. It's a song of song, Le Bien-Aimé, the well-loved. And it's a Fagini recording with Nicholas Mulroy leading the, the tenor section. And it sums up what I think about good singing, good expressive singing is, because he's so into the text. He's so colourful with the consonants and colourful with the vowels in a different way that the piece almost seems to sing itself, which is nonsense, of course. Um, it's also an absolutely striking piece. So we'll finish with this today.
Thanks for listening today. I uh, hope we got to grips with some of the uh, issues of choral technique that you were interested in. Uh, do please share this with your friends, tag it, all those social media things. Uh, even tell people about it in the human word. Thanks for listening. Bass low notes. Bass low notes. Choral Chihuahua is brought to you by E. Fagellini and the Sixteen and produced by Perseus, the Sixteen and Polyphonic Films. It's supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, please contact us through either ensemble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon which costs just a few pounds per month. Or if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via choralchihuahua.com. Thanks.